The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. I would not trust a juror who came in in Glynn County and said, I'm not familiar with this case. Um, They're either not being truthful or living in a cave. They're going to have to try to get the jury to look beyond the racist history that's going to come in. I mean, it's, you know, we all know that the trial is going to be an issue of, you know, whether or not these these folks were racist or not. Um, And so they really have to try and get the jury to see that these people are more than their racist attitudes. And if they can do that, then they have a shot. But it's going to be very hard to humanize these folks in front of the jury. But I think of any case I've, I've worked on, this case has a higher chance of a hung jury than I've ever seen. Because I think it's you really may get jurors in there who just are going to see it one way or another and dig in. We are one week into jury selection in the murder trial against Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan. To no one's surprise, numerous prospective jurors have some strong feelings about the case. In fact, very, very strong feelings. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As always, I'm joined by my AJC colleague, Asia Burns. 600 potential jurors were summoned to appear on Monday, October 18th. Up to 400 more could be called in on October 25th if they're needed. It looks like jury selection will take a while. One juror after another, when questioned individually, said they have negative impressions of Travis, Greg, and Roddy. But first, let's set the scene. The chants you heard are from the Transformative Justice Coalition. Dozens of its members congregated outside the courthouse for the first days of trial, They set up folding chairs near the entrance and put up a big tent in a side parking lot where they eat lunch. The Glynn County Courthouse is in Brunswick's historic district. In some ways, it looks like a traditional Southern Gothic town straight out of a William Faulkner novel. The courthouse itself is a stocky red brick building with white columns out front. And the courtyard just across the way from it is lined with Southern live oak trees dripping with Spanish moss. 
There was more greenery tumbling out of the red brick garden beds. And when the sun rises over this place, it feels cinematic. And you saw the sunrise. We were there extremely early to make sure at least one of us got a seat inside the courthouse. I was standing in that courtyard when separate crowds began to form of people who were interested in this case and what it meant for the community. In one corner, a woman in a pink cardigan sat on one of the brick garden beds. She told me she had grown up with Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper, and they were so close, they called each other cousin. She said she had switched shifts with a colleague at her job to make sure that she would be able to come to the courthouse to support Ahmad's family, her family. Then, a group of people exchanging hugs and handshakes emerged. It was the Glenn Clergy for Equity. They had come to show support for Ahmad's family and pray over the parties involved in the case. One of them, a rabbi, began to hum a song that was familiar to her. She taught it to everyone else that was gathered, and they began singing together. Another pastor introduced a student from a local high school choir and invited him to lead the gathering in a song. It was a song I've known all my life, the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. The group moved their assembly from the courtyard to the steps of the courthouse, and they sang the first verse of the song a second time. Then, Pastor John Perry, who leads the Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church in Brunswick, led the group in a prayer. The other group members faded their song to a hum, and when the prayer ended, they began singing again. Unity and love, God, of our community, Father. We pray, Father, that peace, that love and unity will prevail, Father, and that as a community, as we go through this... I caught up with one of the singers, who is not a clergy member, but is a Brunswick native. It's painful. It's painful. That's Dwala Nobles. She lived in the Atlanta area for 40 years before moving back to Brunswick just three years ago. Um, but the hope lies in, you know, that we can gather today and, and support the family in particular. That's, the, that's where my head has been. That's where my prayers have been, um, that they will have the justice that they deserve. Um, this is something that we experience way too often in our country. Because we're in a pandemic, Judge Timothy Walmsley is having all people in the courtroom spread out for social distancing. It was initially thought that journalists would not have a seat to watch the individual questioning, but one of our lawyers, Leslie Gaither, convinced Walmsley to allow for two pool reporters inside the courtroom, and we're getting excellent feeds so far from them. Now, remember, Georgia's rules for jury selection are awful. Yes, that's true. They don't allow us to record what the jurors are saying. And for that reason, we'll relay what the pool reporters are providing us. It's been good stuff. But first, let's get into what Walmsley did and didn't allow lawyers to ask prospective jurors. He denied a defense request to ask jurors if they believe no one should be able to shoot an unarmed man under any circumstances. And he rejected their request to ask if someone should be able to detain another person under any circumstances. You'll remember that the defense is asking Walmsley to keep the prosecution from introducing photos of the front vanity license plate on Travis McMichael's pickup truck. Just in case it comes in, they asked to question jurors on their views on the flag. The state objected to it. 
We object to, do you agree with this statement? The Confederate flag is a racist symbol. Same question for the old Georgia state flag. That's Prosecutor Linda Donikoski. Once again, 23 is sort of in the same bucket with the asking the jurors, do you believe this makes this person a racist? Do you believe this makes this person a racist? So there's a, a propounding of a number of questions where they want the juror to say, I guess, that, oh yeah, if somebody does this, I automatically think they're a racist. <clears throat> Those sorts of questions um, I think are inappropriate, especially for voir dire. The rebuttal from Brian's lawyer, Kevin Goff, was truly remarkable. For the record, we don't believe this is a case about race. We're aware that that's come up. We, we don't believe that. We don't think this is a case about race? Well, whose client told the GBI that Travis said as he stood over the dying Ahmad, effing inward. That, of course, would be Kevin Goff's client, Roddy, the guy whose statement catapulted a case already saturated with condemnations of racism into the bigotry stratosphere. Like I said, remarkable. Regardless, Wamsley made his decision. The court's going to permit the question about the Confederate flag. So even though Wamsley hasn't yet ruled on whether Travis's license plate comes into evidence, it seems like he's playing his hand here, wouldn't you think? Sure does. Looks like it's going to come in. There's going to be a ton of pressure. And that's one thing that I always like to ask is when you go back, to, if I were the defense or, or the prosecution, I would ask if you go back to your community or your work tomorrow and you found the defendant not guilty or guilty is whoever's asking the question, what would the response of your coworkers, of your community members be? That's Denise Delarue, who we interviewed for the previous episode. Funny she said that. The defense essentially wanted the same question asked to prospective jurors. It prompted some interesting exchanges. Let me guess. Donikoski said no. This is sort of the, are you concerned about your safety, your reputation, or your livelihood if you were to be a juror on this case? That's the, the, please feel free to raise your hand and give us some excuse because we've just told you that we'll consider this. People serve on juries every single day in this country. They serve on murder cases every single day in this country, including cases that are televised or that are controversial. So at this point, to ask that question is just basically asking every juror to raise their hand to be asked to be let off this jury. Frank Hogue, who represents Greg McMichael, disagreed. If a juror... Con was concerned, for example, that if they were on our <coughs> case, heard the case, and then honestly thought that the correct verdict would be not guilty, and yet had thoughts in their mind or discussion among their fellow jurors, that if we do acquit these defendants, uh, our own safety may be at risk, the safety of our family, our reputation, our livelihood, our business, uh, all of those could be legitimate concerns based on you know, what has happened in the United States in the wake of jury trials um, going way back, not just in the recent year and a half, but we've seen it many times where communities are thrown into great chaos after a courtroom has uh, engaged in a trial and a verdict's been reached. 
And it's not unreasonable to think that some jurors who live here in Glenn County would come into this case with those concerns on their mind. When Wamsley denied this question, number 29 of the defense's list, Travis's lawyer, Bob Rubin, pushed back and got a thoughtful reply from his honor. Number 29 is perhaps the most important question that should be asked. Let, let, let me touch on this. I, this is a case that um, has garnered significant attention um, in this community as well as around the country. And I have no doubt that the thousand or so individuals that were summoned when they received that summons uh, reacted in some way to that, whether that was due to a concern for safety, due to their reputation in the community, how that might be affected if in fact they do participate. Um, this is not an easy thing for anybody. And so it is no, I have no doubt that if you ask that question, you will get a response from almost every individual that it affects them in some way. Goff tried to get his two cents worth in too, but that didn't happen. The Glynn County Courthouse Annex opened an hour later today, supposedly for some other reason that I think everybody in this town believes it was a security issue. Businesses downtown, as we are sitting here, are deciding whether they should board up their their their. One thing I'll just when I put my hand up like this, you need to stop. Here's the the court's position. The more we talk about this, the greater the issue becomes. We're trying a case. Okay, we're going to get a panel in, and there are issues that we need to work through. This particular question, as it is phrased, is not going to be asked. As you'll see, the issue came up anyway. So, what did some of the jurors say? On Monday, they brought in the first group into the courthouse. There were 20 of them spread out across the large jury assembly room with the judge, the lawyers, and the defendant sitting up front facing them. Dunikoski began asking questions for the prosecution. Jurors who replied yes were asked to raise their hands. She started out by seeking to find out which prospective jurors may be automatically disqualified, such as, is anyone here not a resident of Glenn County? Is there anyone here who is under the age of 18? Is there anyone here who is over 70 years old and doesn't want to serve on the jury? Are you a full-time caretaker of a child under six years old? Is there anyone here who has difficulty understanding English? Here's a sampling of some of her questions. Is there anyone here who has been convicted of a felony and has not had their rights restored to them? Is there anyone here who is currently a post-certified law enforcement officer with arrest powers? Is there anyone here who is a full-time student currently enrolled in and attending classes? Have you ever been the victim of a violent crime or a crime against your person? Has anyone here ever witnessed a violent crime in progress? Please raise your hand if a you, a relative, or a close personal friend has ever been arrested for shooting someone? All right. Is there anyone here who feels that they are not going to be able to follow the law that the judge gives them? Judge Wamsley is the one who provides the law and is the one who tells you this is what the law is. Addressing the first panel of 20 jurors, Donikoski also asked, would you like to serve on this jury? At first, nobody raised their hands. Finally, one young man did. He was the only one. 
Jason Sheffield, who represents Travis McMichael, then asked some questions. I like the way he introduced himself and made note that all 600 jurors summoned that day were designated numbers 1 through 600, except many numbers were missing. I also want to thank you for being here on behalf of all of us seated over here to your right. The gaps in the numbers on your name tags between you represent the folks that didn't come today. And it is so important for you to be here, as the judge said. We are thanking you in advance for your honesty and the truthful answers that you feel in your hearts and what you think in your mind. He then asked jurors about their feelings about the defendants. Do any of you sitting here now have a negative feeling about Travis McMichael? Same question about Mr. Greg McMichael. And lastly, about Mr. Roddy Bryan. Quite a few jurors have been raising their hands in response. He also asked this question. A lot of people think that criminal defense lawyers operate on some kind of lower standard and that we just do and say anything to get people off. Do any of you sitting here today have a negative feeling about the criminal defense lawyers that are here to represent the men accused and charged? Do you have a negative feeling generally about us or about criminal defense lawyers? Then he asked the panel if anyone there had participated in a social justice movement. And then... He asked this, and I was fascinated by the way he posed the question. Now getting a little bit more specific, not necessarily participating in marches or going to places where there are conversations, but supporting in any way the Black Lives Matters movement. Very good, important movement in our country. Have you supported that? Anything from just having positive feelings about it in your heart and sharing with others or even financially supporting or bumper stickers. I'm certain Sheffield sincerely believes Black Lives Matter is an important movement. I wonder what jurors were thinking when the lawyer representing Travis McMichael phrased it that way. I wonder what Travis, Greg, and Roddy were thinking about it too. This is Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Judge Walmsley has told the news media not to give the occupations, number of children, residence, age, and marital status of any of the prospective jurors. He wants to protect their anonymity. So, we'll just identify them by their designated juror number and their gender. The first person brought in for individual questioning was juror number two. He said he had a negative impression about Greg McMichael, but not the other two defendants. He said, from what I observed, he appeared to be the lead dog. Juror number two also said he'd seen so much about the case on the news and on social media, he was sick of it. He even said, yes, I've said that they were guilty. And he said that he'd shared the cell phone video of the fatal shooting on social media and talked about the case with his brother, who, by the way, received his own jury summons. Juror number two said he's worried about possible blowback if he becomes one of the 12 jurors. He said, I don't want to have to relocate because of something that goes wrong. 
He wouldn't pass the Denise Delarue test, would he? Not even close. Juror number four wouldn't either. She told the court, I'm not excited about this whole thing. How would I feel if I were asked to render a verdict that was unpopular? Any verdict, guilty or innocent, is going to be unpopular with some people. She added, maybe I'd even feel unsafe. This juror has some strong feelings about the case. She said, I think Mr. Arbery was probably in terror. And as for Travis McMichael, she said, he shot a man in his neighborhood who didn't appear to have done anything wrong. What would I call that? I guess I would call it murder. Juror number five believes racism played a role in Ahmad's killing. She especially turned her scorn on Roddy Bryan because he took the cell phone video of the fatal shooting. Juror number five told the court his videotaping the scene was disgusting and vicious. At the same time, I'm thankful that he did because we are able to see what happened. We also need to make note of a pretty shocking development. It turns out that the Glen County Clerk's Office sent out a link on its website telling jurors when they should report to the local rec center. They were to come in groups, according to their assigned numbers, at various times throughout the day. It just so happened that the webpage with the schedules also included links to the court dockets in the case. Meaning any curious juror could click on those links and read all the court motions and rulings in the case. Including all the details of Ahmad's past run-ins with the law and his mental health issues? That evidence had already been ruled inadmissible by the judge. What were they thinking? It's astonishing, really. On Tuesday, attorney Bob Rubin called it inexplicable. Wamsley said he'd ask the clerk's office to remove the links from the webpage, and they were removed by the end of the day. But as of last Thursday, at least eight prospective jurors had said they had clicked on the links and read some of the court filings. AJC reporter Shadi Abu Saeed is also part of our team here in Brunswick. He was one of the pool reporters in the courtroom on Tuesday. So, Shadi, what did the jurors you saw have to say? Many, many people had their minds made up about the case. It seems like everybody had seen the video in some form or fashion. Also, a lot of people said they didn't want to serve on the jury. They were afraid of the repercussions. But there were a couple of people who somehow surprisingly snuck through, and they were qualified to be in the pool, right? Yeah. Juror number 161 said he knows Greg McMichael and former District Attorney Jackie Johnson, who's now under indictment. He said McMichael had been over to the family's house multiple times. He's an almost certain strike by the prosecution, don't you think? Absolutely. There was juror number 72 who said she didn't believe what happened to Arbery was justified. She actually said, quote, I don't believe in vigilante justice. She also said she thought what happened was a hate crime, and she was qualified. A strike by the defense, no doubt, right? No doubt. There was also juror number 39 who had some interesting exchanges with the attorneys, and he was qualified. He had actively researched the case and told Prosecutor Donikowski he was still leaning one way or the other. He added, quote, I just don't know what kind of evidence is going to be presented. So attorney Bob Rubin told him it sounded like he could be fair and impartial to both sides, right? He did ask that, but the guy answered, I'm not really sure that's where I am. Someone was murdered. That's all I know. Well, that's telling. Thanks, Shetty. There were a couple of other interesting developments. Two brothers both received jury summons for the trial. So did a mother and her son. When asked about that, she said with a giggle, I know him quite well. After all, Glen County has just about 85,000 residents. So I guess that's bound to happen when a thousand people are summoned. Okay. Jury selection dragged on and on and on. It even tested the normally level-headed Judge Walmsley's patience. 
At least he took Friday off. But we figured we'd give you a compilation of sorts of some of the most telling and interesting comments the jurors gave. Here's juror number 72. I think if it was a white guy running through the neighborhood, I don't think he would have been targeted as a suspect. Juror number 175 was one of the few prospective jurors to say something like this. By watching the news and videos, I believe it was not guilty. I believe it was self-defense. The defense's hearts must have swelled upon hearing this. If not excused for cause, the woman would certainly make the prosecution use one of its strikes to get rid of her. But then she said, I have plans to move out of the state this weekend. My lease is up. She was excused. As for the next one, please bear with us here. We know as well as anyone how somber and serious this case is, but we can't resist this. Juror number 170 was asked about the defense's defense. He said, quote, The only time I've heard of citizen's arrest is in the Andy Griffith show. Of course, if you've listened to all our episodes, you'll remember this from episode 3. Juror number 170 was referring to the episode of the TV show when Deputy Barney Fife gave a ticket to Gomer Pyle for making a U-turn. Then Gomer places Barney under citizen's arrest for doing the same thing. Like you said, you broke the law by making an illegal U-turn, and I hereby, as a citizen of the town of Mayberry in the United States of America, arrest you. Like I said, we couldn't resist. There was also this woman who became overwhelmed with emotion. She said, when people's lives are at stake and somebody got killed, it's really hard. I'm leaning toward guilty, but I'm still undetermined. And juror number 235? He clicked on the links on the clerk's website and read some of the court filings. He said this about whether he could just look at the facts. It'd be very difficult to. If I wouldn't have seen those links, the misinformation is everywhere. That stuff is in court documents. It's like, oh wow, these are official court documents. We turn to Don Samuel, Breakdown's resident legal expert. What about all these jurors coming in with either fixed or slanted opinions against Travis, Greg, and Roddy? Well, I mean, there's a couple of different issues that are going on here. One is, you know, can you really get a fair jury given those numbers? Uh, You have to look at a number of things, not just the percentage of jurors who have struck for cause, though that is a very important element. You also have to look at how much publicity was there in the community which would not be admissible at trial. Were there, was there evidence that was obtained or were there confessions that were made that have been excluded? Something that would be excluded at trial. That's a particularly important factor. What's so peculiar about this case is the only real, that I'm aware of, the only real press that exists in which <laughs> the state, the judges not going to allow the evidence in was pro-defense. Right? It was the negative information about Mr. Arbery. This is a rough estimate, but it seems that about half of the jurors who aren't disqualified at the outset are being dismissed because they can't be fair and impartial. Does that raise the prospect of a motion for a change of venue to move the trial to another county in Georgia? You know, you look at all those factors in deciding we just can't get a fair jury in Glynn County. 50% of the people are so antagonistic. of the community is being struck for cause. They just cannot be fair. 
Well, what about the other 50%? Are, all the, are they all aware of all the bad press? Are they all aware of what their neighbors are saying? And they're just willing to say, but I'll be fair. I mean, is that really a fair trial where the, where the 50% who are qualified are just barely qualified? So, but that's a decision the defense has to make, whether to ask for a change of venue. So, you know, and I don't, I don't know what their strategy is, what the defendant's strategy is, why they want to be in Glynn County. I mean, the, the press that I've seen, for what it's worth, is there's a lot of press dealing with the family and the churches and the marches and the parades and, the, and this and that, and all of which is perfectly understandable and justified and appropriate, but it's not very conducive to a fair trial. And so I, I, the defense lawyers are as good as any defense lawyers I've ever known. And they've made a decision that this is the hill that they're going to fight on. And so, so be it. Judge Walmsley also made an important ruling in favor of the defense before jury selection began. Walmsley gave the defense 24 strikes. They can use them collectively or each of the three defendants can employ eight apiece. And he gave the state 12 strikes. In other words, the defense has twice as many strikes as the prosecution. Usually in Georgia, the prosecution and defense have an equal number of strikes. Obviously, it is is an advantage to have more strikes than the opposing side. You're able to get rid of more jurors um, who are qualified, but you don't want. That's what the peremptory strikes do. Then the the prosecution is able to do. That's Don Samuel again. And while it might be an advantage, in a case like this, it's all relative. But given the fact that 50% of all jurors are so negative that the judge had to remove them before the peremptory strikes were even exercised, um, I, I wonder whether you know, you're being thrown a life vest in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and there's no boats nearby. Yes, it's an advantage, but I'm not sure how good it's going to be if there are so many unqualified jurors. You know, so you strike 12, what do you, you, know, you strike 24. Still, who are you left with? Are you left with really impartial, really, really impartial jurors or just people, jurors who say, oh, I'll put it out of my mind. I promise I'll do it based on the evidence. Samuel puts it all in perspective. Um, Listen, jury selection is uh, probably the most important part of any trial because they're the ones who are making decisions. But it it is the, the process over which you have the least impact and effect. You know, you can spend a year investigating. You can spend a year going through your experts and analyzing videos. You, you just can't control, ultimately, which jurors are going to show up. Right. But yeah, and that's, yeah. a, and that's it's an odd feature of our criminal justice system that, you know, the jurors are the most important, you know, impact on the, on the ultimate result and the, the, the one part of the process over which we have the least influence. Finally, before we sign off, let's tell you about a motion filed on the first day of jury selection by Prosecutor Donikoski. The state continues to worry about the possibility of the defense trying to introduce evidence of Ahmad's problems with the law and his mental health issues. Evidence that Judge Walmsley has ruled inadmissible. Correct. In her motion, Donikoski is again trying to head off the defense at the pass. She notes that the state intends to offer witnesses who knew Ahmad. They'll testify they saw him running or jogging in his neighborhood or in other neighborhoods around Brunswick. Donikoski says this is not good character evidence. If the state were to have someone testify about Ahmad's good character, then that would open the door. You know, testified he'd never got into trouble. 
The defense could certainly counter that. But Donikoski says the testimony she's referring to will say Ahmad was an avid runner. It's simply fact testimony, not character evidence. She goes on to say that the defense has repeatedly stated that such testimony could open the door and let them counter it with evidence of Ahmad's past. But Donikoski said this type of evidence, even character evidence that comes in inadvertently, does not do that. Donikoski adds that even if one of the state's own witnesses testifies about Ahmad's good character, the state will object to it. You know, they are, they are doing everything they can to keep it out because it would have an impact on the jury. I mean, it clearly would have an impact on the jury. And, and so maybe an emotional impact, you know, maybe it kind of levels the playing field impact. Um, but unfortunately, according to the law, it's not legally relevant at all. Either you were acting in self-defense or you weren't. And it doesn't matter whether Mr. Arbery had committed various crimes in the past or, you know, had won the Nobel Peace Prize. It just doesn't make a difference. Either it's a valid self-defense case or it's not. Samuel says the state makes a good argument. Still. I I saw the motion, and and I think in prior um, discussions that we've had, you know, we all agree that if the state messes up and opens the door, then the defense is going to be able to get in its evidence. Um, I thought their brief was well done, and they say it's very difficult, if not impossible, for the state to open the door um, in, in the way that we are suspecting that the defense is going to try to walk in. Um, and we'll see. Next on Breakdown. Uh, but we are going to be picking a jury in this case, and you are now a participant in that process. Uh, we can't do uh, what we do in Superior Court without members of the community coming down, and you are now an integral part of this case. During the process, you may be asked questions uh, that you feel a little uncomfortable responding to. I do ask that you volunteer as much information as you can. And, uh, again, I want to thank you. I don't give a long speech about um, your obligation to the community and jury service and what you have to do. I just appreciate the fact that you're here. And we can't do this without you. And you're participating in something that's important uh, to the court, to the state, and to the defendant. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will continue to try and drop an episode every week of the trial. And you can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so for all of us and get that booster too. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown.